0: Know me, I'm Nate Menor, I'm the lead pastor here. I get to preach this week. I don't always do that. <laughs> I do a lot, but not all the time. Uh, so, th- we are in the middle of a series uh, on Proverbs uh, called Choosing Your Path Wisely. Uh, and really, what we're trying to do is, is focus on some of just the wisdom that's in the book of Proverbs and, and sort of use that to point us to the truth of, of the gospel and the truth that we see uh, in other parts of God's word. Uh, and so this week we're, we're talking about choose justice, making the decision to choose uh, the thing that is just and that is fair. Uh, and so my first question, and I don't usually lead with questions, but my first question is this, what is justice? And I ask that because there's a lot of times, there's ideas that sort of float around about what the answer to this is, but we don't often actually think about what it is and sort of put it into concrete terms. Um, so, obviously our idea of what justice is, is impacted by the country we live in, by the things around us, by the culture, all those kinds of things. And so generally for us, white middle class-ish uh, Americans, um, I know we're not all white, but you know, generally it's, it's Sterling Heights, right? Um, so th- that idea then justice often becomes what's right before the law. Like, am I good with the law? Is the law like treating me fairly? Am I obeying the law or am I disobeying, disobeying the law? And that's kind of the whole thing. Like if I'm good and the law's not doing anything that I don't agree with and I'm kind of following it, then I'm good, that's, that's justice. And, and if there's something that goes wrong, you're like, well, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna have my day in court and then we'll figure this out, right? And so then that's sort of the idea that we have of justice. Um, in general, Uh, if we think of justice more than just sort of ourselves, personally, we think of it as the government and sort of the deal that we have with the government. I obey you, you don't pick on me. And that's kind of just the the extent of it. And so it's following the rules. It's if we break the rules, what's the appropriate punishment? And that's sort of the, the end of it. So then if that's justice, then we have to ask ourselves another question biblically, and that's what does it mean to be righteous? Because biblically, righteousness and justice are tied to each other. They're very closely connected. So righteous, a lot of times, like the theology that we have bleeds into the way that we think. And so righteousness is actually very similar to justice in a lot of our minds, where it's sort of me and God, where if I do the right things, then God sort of rewards me. And by the right things, it's generally like, I go to church, I read my Bible some of the time, I try to pray occasionally, I'm it's just sort of, you know, the me and God relationship. And as long as I have like this sort of open channel to God and I communicate through that occasionally, then, then I'm probably fine. Um, and, and so we tend to think about both righteousness as ju- and justice in the United States in terms of individuals, me personally. It's, am I righteous? Do I have this relationship with God? Am I, is justice good because I have a good relationship with the government? And that's sort of how we tend to structure it. And so, you know, I come before God, and it's not about how I've necessarily treated other people. It's about, have I done the things that I think that God wants me to do personally? Like, it's, it's he and I. And the problem with that is that none of those things are really personal. Like, it starts there. That's a piece of it. But it's, it's so much broader than that that it's really difficult. So let's think about it from a justice perspective. Let's pretend I'm a terrible driver. Not that big of a stretch, but not as bad as I'm about to... <laughs> I'm about to say. So if I'm a terrible driver and I drive around, how many people do I have to side swipe before I get a ticket, right? How many people do I have to run off the road? And you're like, okay, you get away with it because there's not always cops around, but there comes a point where it's like, no, you get busted and you get a ticket until you get points. And then if I continue to get in accidents and run people off the road, there's gonna come a point where those tickets are gonna accumulate to the point where the government's gonna step in and say, you're done. We're taking your driver's license. You're not allowed to drive, right? And you would say, well, that's, that's, that's justice. That's fair. Sure. And then I spent a year with my license suspended, and then I get my driver's license back. We're like, justice has been done. Wait, what? Like, no, I drove 30 people off the road. They all had to pay their insurance. They got an accident. I didn't pay for any of that. I didn't deal with any of that stuff. I hit and ran, right? And so you're like, well, I mean, you received like maybe a slap on the wrist, but that's not fair. That's not equitable in our system. That's, you got off easy and they paid the price for you being an idiot. And so we understand that that's, maybe that's justice in the legal sense, but that's not actually fairness. That's not right before God. And then if you stretch that into righteousness, it's like, okay, well, if I spend my 10 minutes in prayer in the morning, do I get to go out and yell at my kids and like scream at them, right? Do I get to be abusive to the people that are around me? You're like, well, no, that's not, that's not righteous. It's not just you and God. It has this element that sort of spreads out from that. So turn with me to Proverbs 11, because there's actually biblical support for this idea that it's not just this one-on-one thing, me and the law and me and the government. Proverbs 11, starting in verse 10, it says this, "'When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. "'When the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. "'By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. "'By the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown.'" So the idea is that righteousness is connected in the social sphere. Like, there's a social element to this. Because why? Because if you're righteous, then the city that's around you reaps the benefits of that. Like, it's right there. Like, when it goes well with the righteous, if you are a righteous person, you have a good relationship with God, the city around you is happy when you're doing well. Why? It's not because you've got a great quiet time. That's not the thing that the city rejoices about. They don't care about that. Right? They care about what's your influence in the city around you. Are you treating people well? Are you spending your money in places that's appropriate? Are you acting in a way that's that's helpful for the larger community? And if you're righteous, the answer is going to be yes. Right, So the city is happy when when you're doing well. And obviously, if you're a person that's not honest, if you don't have integrity, you're unrighteous, then the city's like, yeah, we don't really appreciate you. You're a liar, You you pull more resources than you give. You're a jerk we don't appreciate it. And so when you collapse, like, that's fine. We don't really care that much about you. And, and there's a similar idea, not just for righteousness, but also for justice. Uh, go to Proverbs 31. I'm not gonna talk about women. Everybody goes to Proverbs 31, and they're like, it's the, it's the perfect woman. You're like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of verses before that, we're gonna talk about one of those. All of you that have spent your lives in churches that are women, you're like, oh, thank goodness we're not dealing with that part. Proverbs 31, starting in verse eight open your mouth for the mute for the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. So there's a connection between judgment decisions and righteousness, right? Those things are connected. And so if we desire justice and righteousness, the right judgment involves defending the rights of the poor and needy in ancient cultures, Actually, no, in all cultures of all time, it is easier to get a fair shake if you have more money. Right, like if you've got a bunch of money, it's way easier to go to court. First of all, if you're poor, can you afford to take a day off work and go to court? The answer is probably no. If you're rich, not only can you afford to take a day off of work and go to court, you can hire somebody else to come along with you that goes to court all the time that will argue on your behalf, right? You pay for a good lawyer, you generally get what you pay for. And so sort of day in court, we're like, okay, well, in our justice system, getting your day in court is a thing that we would say, yeah, that's fair. But do you really get your day in court if you can't afford a lawyer and they've got the best legal team in the state, right? It's, it's suddenly you're like, well, I mean, maybe. So what, what Solomon or what Lemuel here is saying, he writes this proverb, he, what he's saying is that, If you're a person that wants to pursue justice, you have to stand up for the rights of the people that can't stand up for themselves. They don't have the opportunity to defend themselves. They don't have the opportunity to get what they need from the law. And so you have a responsibility as a person that can do that to support them in that. And so these verses connect to what we might call social justice. And a bunch of you just like, like you snarled a little bit inside you. I understand that, we'll get to that in a second. The thing is is my righteousness can't just be connected between me and God. And the idea of justice can't just be me and the government. There are social aspects to both of those. My righteousness impacts the people around me. Whether or not I get a fair shake is impacted by whether the people around me also are getting treated rightly. There are social aspects to both of those. So if you got really angry when I said the word social justice, we're going to talk for a second, okay? So there's two fake gospels that I want to talk to you about, and that's going to be a thing that you're going to have to deal with. And then we're going to talk about what the real gospel is and how that's different, okay? So two false gospels and the good news. False gospel number one is the American social gospel. Now, I'm not going to go to Bible for a couple minutes. I'm going to talk about history. And you need to trust me that this is... Biblical, we'll get back there. Okay, so (laughs) I say social justice, you got uncomfortable. This one's for you. Okay, so here's the problem. About 100 years ago, there was this idea in our country that maybe people weren't that bad. Maybe people were just in bad circumstances. And so a bunch of guys that were preachers that were supposed to be theologians got together and said, if we can just fix the social problems that we have in our country, we can fix people's sin natures. People won't be bad, they only do bad things in response to their bad circumstances. If we fix the circumstances, we we can fix the people. And so churches built their theology on this idea. And so there's this whole thing that came out of this social gospel where we're gonna spread the gospel by fixing people's circumstances. And Jesus is really only there to help you be a better person because if we get all the circumstances squared out, then we're good to go. So churches invested a lot in social work, they invested a lot in helping people on the assumption that if they helped enough people physically and emotionally, then that would solve the world's problem. They didn't really take account into the fact that people have a sin nature and they turned Jesus into a self-help guru. Okay, now there's whiplash because whenever you've got something like this, that's a different, it wasn't really a new idea, it was just different from what people had seen before. So then you've always got the other side of that, which is false gospel number two, which is easy believism. So easy believism is essentially, wait, sin's not an external problem, it's an internal problem, you've got to fix that. But they were nervous about the fact that everybody else was kind of working for their salvation. And so they said, you don't have to do anything. It's just by grace of God. And you're like, oh, this sounds good, right? Like this is, it's just grace of God. Except for what the easy believism side says was, okay, you say a prayer, you're good to go. If you just pray this prayer one time, then you're on the right team and you'll go to heaven. It doesn't matter what else happened. And they didn't really think through what the life was after that. They just said, pray this prayer, you're good. They didn't want to get confused with the other side. So that was was their response. We're just gonna have this one thing. The problem is, is both of those are false gospels. And the reason I say they're false gospels is because both of them take a little piece of the gospel and make it the only thing, and they ignore the rest of what the gospel says. Of course, part of the problem is that both of us are drawn to one of these sides or the other because they're part of the gospel. And so we get connected to that part of the gospel. And so we lean in the direction and we get really mad at the other, the people that lean in the other direction. Whether or not we fully believe either of those false gospels, we still lean in a direction, okay? The other problem is that these got tied with political parties. And so now your political affiliations impact what you see in scripture. and I don't have to talk a whole lot for you to figure out really quickly which party you vote for to which side you are drawn to. And you're like, oh yeah, no, I see that. There is a political element to this. Now, what I'm asking you to do is put the politics outside. I'm not dealing with the political part of this. I'm dealing with what scripture says. We're talking about the gospel. So both sides take a little piece of the gospel. They twist it to fit what they want and they kick out the other part. They don't deal with that. So Here's what the real gospel is. And I'm going to call out the part where both of the false gospels go off the rails as I go through the actual gospel. Okay. The real gospel says that we, as a human race, are fundamentally broken. That we, all of us as individuals, and as a human species, are all guilty of rebelling against God. It's an individual thing. It's a group thing. It's both. And, and... Our main problem is our alienation from God. We don't act in the right way because we're alienated from God. We don't have the relationships the right way because we're alienated from God. Everything comes to we disobeyed God, either personally and both personally and as, as a race and we walked away from what God had us and so now we're separated from God. That's our fundamental problem. That's where the social gospel gets it wrong. The social gospel thinks you're actually not that bad. You're not that alienated from God. You're probably just in a rough spot. So we are all sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. Romans five says this, starting in verse six, it says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That means if Jesus died for you, you were ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not good people that missed it, sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? And so the gospel is we were sinners. We were alienated from God. We were far away from what we needed. And Jesus came to earth out of love for us and died. And his death does a bunch of stuff. It, it paid the price for our sin right? It brings us in. And, and so what happens is when he died, he takes away our sin, or he We can allow him to take away our sin. We've got to actually accept him, right? That's, that's part of it. But he takes away our sin. And, and so he gives us his righteousness. So there's this trade where he takes our sin and dies for it. And we get his righteousness and we stand before God in his righteousness, And so it says we've been justified by his blood. That means that legally we stand before God and we're good to go. Other verses will talk about adoption. We're adopted into the family of God. We receive the privileges of a child of God when we come to Christ in faith. And so that's the real gospel. But then what happens is that it's not just that Jesus died to bear the blame for our sin. He brings us into the family of God and gives us new life. He gives us life so that we have this relationship with God and we have the opportunity to grow closer to God and to walk with God and to be in this ongoing relationship with God. And this is where easy believism screws it up because they're like, you pray that prayer, you're good, you're going to heaven. And what, it's, what they forget is that there's a whole life after that that has to be changed, right? Like, yes, if you believe, you're, you're going to heaven. But if you actually believe, it's gonna result in some changes in your life. Because believing that God loved you so much that he was willing to die for you is a life-changing truth. And if your life doesn't change, that probably means you didn't believe. And so what happens is when we come to Christ, our lives change, we get new life. And sometimes it takes a little bit. Sometimes it takes a lot of time. Sometimes, you know, we sort of have to live into the truth that we've, we've realized. But what happens is over time, as we walk with God, as we submit to the Holy Spirit, we start to walk away from some of our sin. We confess, we repent, we make it right with God. God points out something else. We confess, we repent, we make it right with God. And so there's over time, we change our direction. And so we walk with God. And so Jesus has given me his righteousness. That changes my definition of what justice is. I have received mercy. I don't grab uh, what other people want or what other people need because I've received graciously new life and freedom from God. And so suddenly my life is so changed, I start to, mercy and grace start to flow out of me, right? Like it's, it's what God has given me and so that's what comes out of me. I'm overwhelmed by the grace of God and so I react with grace and mercy. And that doesn't come from I was a good person and I just figured this out. It comes from Christ came and sacrificed himself for me. Like he came, he died. And so everything that I am, everything that I have comes from what Christ has already done. So my righteousness, that's not just a me and God thing, that's what has God graciously given me, and then how can I bless the rest of the world with it? Justice isn't, am I right before the government? It's, this is what God has given me, and I wanna give a fair shake to everyone around me. It flows from God out to the rest of the world. But it comes through me. So I have two application questions about this, and then, then we'll move forward. The history lesson and the gospel is done. Uh, The first question is, have I responded to the good news of Jesus? Have I come to Christ in faith and said, Lord, I am a sinner. I cannot fix this myself. I need you to do this for me. My second question is a little more personal. What's the false gospel I lean toward? Because if you've come to Christ in faith, you've lived your Christian life, you have lived it in this culture, in this political climate, you've done those things, but it's, it's in a context. And that context leads you in a direction. And if, you've got, if you lean toward the false gospel of, social, of the social gospel, what you're going to say is it's probably not that important that you really have that moment of, of faith. It's really not that important as long as you do good things. And you're going to lean in that direction. You might not lock in there, but you're going to lean in that direction. Or on the other side, you're like, you know what? I've never really done anything that says that I'm a Christian or I've never acted like a Christian, but I said this prayer. And so that's where I'm at. That's the other side. And we have a tendency to go in one direction or the other. And so we need to ask ourselves, which false gospel do we lean toward? Because that helps us be aware of where the traps and sort of tendencies in our lives lie. All right. So now we're going to get to kind of the meat of the message. (laughs) Wealth, poverty, and righteousness. So I'm shifting gears pretty drastically here, okay? So you're going to have to just be okay with that. It'll, it'll wrap up at some point. (laughs) Most of us have a tendency, and this is back to sort of the social ideas of righteousness and justice as a group. We have a tendency to connect people's financial status with how well they walk with God. Okay. Some of us tend to think that people that are successful have worked hard and are therefore morally superior. Okay. Some of us have a tendency to think that poor people are automatically abused and therefore they're morally superior. Like we we have a tendency to think either rich people are morally better or poor people are morally better. And I say that and you're like, well, I'm not sure that I buy that. Okay. Maybe not. But culture pounds those two messages pretty consistently, both, both of them, which is weird. It's this weird contradiction, right? So if you're like, Um, if you look at someone who has inherited millions of dollars and you're like, they worked hard for that money. You think that rich people are more sort of righteous. That's, that's your default. You assume that they worked hard, even if they didn't work hard at all. And then you look at poor people who maybe have never put any effort into making any money at all. And you're like, well, they were abused. They were held down. And you're like, but they could put a tiny bit of effort in, but you've got that tendency to just think that poor people are are morally better. And so you just sort of give them that. Let me be real clear. Wealth and poverty is one scale. Righteousness and unrighteousness, totally separate scale. It's completely different. There are two different scales. Let's talk about those, the four quadrants that two separate scales create, right? So there are poor and righteous people. There are people that are poor and they're righteous. Oh man, you can't really see it, okay? So down in the corner, we've got poor and righteous. Up in that corner, we've got rich and evil. And so then this becomes poor and evil and then rich and righteous, okay? Just so you guys know where we're at, okay. So you've got people that are poor and righteous, right? They don't have a lot of economic opportunity necessarily, but they love Jesus. And that's really the thing, right? Like if you've got a relationship with the God of the universe and you're walking with him, that's the definition for righteousness. They may have be a hard worker. They might have not have the opportunity to work at all. There could be something going on in their lives, their families, whatever. They could not be working and therefore they are poor. And yet that doesn't mean that they're not walking with God. Okay. There's poor and evil people. I had a guy one time that I fired because he was drunk on the job and stealing from the company. He was poor and he was not a good person. Like it's not a hard combo, right? Like we understand that. We're like, yes, you do bad things. And because there's penalties for those bad things, you end up poor and you're evil. Okay, that's the thing. There's also rich and evil. There are people that have a whole bunch of money that absolutely lack integrity. They don't care at all about the people around them they don't care about what god says they do what they want they make the decisions they want and they are very selfish and they think that it's okay because they don't suffer the consequences because they're rich and then there are the riches and righteous there are people that that walk with god that humbly obey god and either as a result of that or as a result of some of the circumstance in their life they have a bunch of money and they try to honor and glorify God with those finances, but that's a thing that they have. And so they are rich and they are also righteous. They are also walking with God, they have that relationship. And so we have to be aware of all four of those things and keep all that in mind when we have this conversation because if we get confused and we try and tie righteousness to either wealth or poverty, we get completely off track. Right, like your relationship with God is 0% connected to the bottom line in your finances. Not 0%. There's a bunch of expenses along the way that if you refuse to honor God with, that means that you're not right. And and then there's a bunch of expenses along the line where if you do honor God, then okay, then you're righteous. But it's, it's not about what the bottom line number is, it's about your walk with God, right? They're two separate things. Trying completely to just focus on wealth usually means that you're not focusing on righteousness. So if 100% of your energy is I need to make money, that's not righteousness. That's something else. Chasing righteousness sometimes ends up making you more wealthy because you make good decisions and good decisions lead sometimes to economic gain. But you can definitely tell how close a person is to Jesus by their walk with Jesus, not by their bank account. Okay. So there's a couple Proverbs that connected that. Proverbs 16, eight says this, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So Solomon is saying, if you're poor, but you're walking with God, that is better than if you've got a bunch of money coming in and you're not walking with God. So, so he sort of says, there's, there's two sides to this scale, right? Like there's the, the poor righteous and there's the evil unrighteousness. And if you take those two, make the decision to be poor and righteous. And we're reminded over and over again in the Proverbs that God is less concerned about how much money we make than he is about whether or not we're walking with him. Proverbs 15 gives us a good example. In verses 16 and 17, it says this. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Here's the example. Better is dinner of herbs, salad, where love is than a fattened ox with hatred with it. And so, I remember one of the worst meals I've ever had, right? Okay. So I'm on a missions trip to Mexico and somebody screwed up and they didn't know that we were going to be there for dinner and we got there too late for anyone to go grocery shopping. And so it's literally like what they could get from the convenience store. So dinner for like 12 of us that are there for missions work is fried bologna and saltine crackers. That was it. And you're like, that's not a great dinner, right? But you know, we sat there on our little folding chairs around this tiny little table and, and we enjoyed it. And we had good fellowship around it. And, you know, we had, a, we had a good time and that kind of set us up for a week of terrible food and, and good fellowship. And so that was, that was the starting point, but it was one of those things where you're like, no, that was good. I, I remember that. I remember just enjoying that time. You're like, I mean, all the fried bologna is gone, but I'm starving and I guess it's time to go to bed guys. right? But, but that, was, that was a positive thing. And on the flip side you think about a meal with hatred i don't think i've ever had a meal with hatred i've been invited to some weddings where i got like the weird table where i didn't know anybody I know. So enough of you guys are laughing. I'm not the first person to say, okay. So you get a table at a wedding and you're like, I don't know anyone that's this table. And, or maybe I do know them and they're awkward. We're not really good friends. And so you're like, this food's amazing, but I'm just sitting here eating quietly. And like, I guess we're going to leave in like 20 minutes after dinner. Right. And so it's a little bit awkward. You multiply that out. If that's with hatred where everyone's glaring at you and like, oh, I really don't like you. You're like, man, this is not worth it. I'll, I'll take my fried bologna and, and some good company and leave. Like it's, it's, it's better to have that than, than to have this great food without, without any love, you know? And so what, what the Proverbs try and communicate is that the emotional and, and spiritual advantages of walking with God and being humble outweigh the advantage of having money. Like there's a lot more things to our lives than just having a bank account that's large, right? And so Proverbs over and over points us back to your priority ought to be walking with God, humbly you know, being obedient to him rather than making more money. That's where your priority uh, ought to be. And it's interesting because again, we talked about, we, we said that there's such thing as the rich and righteous and Proverbs deals with that too. In Proverbs chapter three, starting in verse nine, it says this, honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of your produce, your barns will be filled with plenty. Your vats will be bursting with wine. So I have to say the disclaimer. We've said it every week so far. Proverbs are not promises, they're advice, okay? So he says, honor the Lord with your wealth and your barns will be filled with plenty. That's not a promise that if you, you know, do what God tells you to, you'll be rich. That's not what that is. He's saying, if you walk with God, it's more likely that you will make more money than than that you will make less. And the first fruits is, is really where it kind of comes in. Because in the Old Testament, they were required to give the first 10% of everything that they made to God. That was the starting point. 10% goes to God. We're not under the law anymore. We don't have that requirement. But the idea that we put God first in our finances means that our attitude is that of honoring God rather than making money. Like we ought to be saying, how can I honor God with my money before I've got to make sure that I'm making extra? I was talking to a guy this week. He doesn't attend Lakeside, so don't, like, look around and try and figure out who it is. He and his wife, before they bought their first house, committed to giving God an equivalent to their house payment. That's a lot. <laughs> and that actually impacts, like, where they can buy a house, right? Because they're like, all right, if the, if the house payment is 800 bucks, we've got to be prepared to make a $1,600 payment because another 800 has to go to the Lord. And so they live in a smaller house than they could based on their income. They live in a neighborhood that's not quite as good. Their school system isn't quite as good. But it's because they said, first and foremost, we are giving this to God. And I'm not saying that to guilt you guys. I don't, like, it's between you and the Lord, honestly. But the decision that I'm going to honor God first with my money is one that leads to attitudes that don't complain about how little money there is. Like if you're honestly saying, God, you get the first cut and then I'll figure out my finances after that. That's an attitude that says, it's not about me. It's about what God wants. And I'd rather grow closer to God than to have a big bank account. Are my financial goals based in selfishness or are my financial goals based on my relationship with God? And I'm asking that because, again, we're talking about justice. And justice and righteousness, a lot of times we look at sort of the external things. And it's easy to just say, okay, well, you've got money, and so you know, the justice system treats you well, and, and you're good with God and all that stuff. But when we look at our hearts and we say, what are my priorities? Am I trying to grab what's mine? Is it about what I want and what I can get? Or is it truly honestly about what God wants for me? Last piece, and I recognize that I'm running out of time, so. (laughs) Righteousness means loving your neighbor. Culturally, we struggle with this because we've somehow made a decision that loving someone means accepting them for exactly who they are without any critique of the decisions that they're making. Okay, that's not true, (laughs) right? Like, you can disagree with someone and still love them. And so there's a lot of people in our society that have a lot of decisions that they've made that we disagree with. And our command biblically is that we have to love them even if they don't appreciate that. Now, it's really easy to say, love them and they hate me anyway, right? Because then we use that as an excuse to not really care about them. We sort of say that we love them, but they don't accept us. And so we're like, well, I love them, but they, but do you actually care about them as people? And I think that's kind of where we struggle is that if we love someone and we just say, I love you unconditionally, It doesn't matter the decisions you make that doesn't mean I agree with those decisions but I do love you in spite of that when we look at Jesus Jesus says you know love your neighbor as yourself and then he makes your neighbor this enormous circle that includes everyone right it includes people that actually hate you it includes people that are racially completely different from you it includes people that have communicable diseases that you really don't want to get but Jesus still reached out to them in love And so there's not like a group of people that were like, well, I love them and they love me back and so we're good. It's I have to act humbly and with love to everyone. And if they don't appreciate that, then what I need to do is reevaluate do I actually love them? Or am I treating them the way that I feel like treating them because we don't agree? Again, going back to Proverbs 31, it says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Loving someone else means even though they can't necessarily do anything for you, they can't help you, they may not even like you, but you still have to go out and say, I want to do what's best for you. I love you sacrificially because that's what God's called me to do. Proverbs 14.31 is actually what was supposed to be the key verse for this, and I just kept kicking it down, kicking it down, but I, I want to read it here. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. He who is generous to the needy honors him. God calls us to give, not just financially, but to be generous in our lives with people that have needs. That can be financial needs, that can be emotional needs, that can be all kinds of needs. But the fact is, is going out of our way to be generous to people that have needs is a thing that honors God. There's not a point where he's like, as long as they check off these 14 boxes, as long as I approve of them in these eight ways. It doesn't say that. It says, be generous to the needy. That means that everybody that's on the evil side automatically needs it. They, they need Jesus, so they've got needs. And everybody that's not on the rich side automatically needs it because they have financial needs. So really, we're supposed to be generous to everyone because everybody has different needs. Bruce Waltke says this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. Like I'll take the hit to help everybody else out. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So wicked people are making the decision, I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to take that even if I don't deserve it. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to make that decision, right? And righteous people are like, it's not fair, but I'm the one that's losing. So it's okay. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to let you have this. And you might bristle at that a little bit because that might sound like socialism. And I, I hear that. And yet I'm not talking again about political science. I'm not talking about economic systems. I'm saying, what does the word of God say? And if you don't do something because it disagrees with your political system that God told you to do, you're not following God. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't fix that for you, right? Like, this is what God says. I'm sorry that it, you don't like it politically. I'm sorry that you don't like the way that it impacts your life, but this is what God says. And so I, I can't really change that. If I'm gonna take Jesus seriously, I have responsibility before God to not let my political loyalties or my social group or my preconceived ideas to get in the way of that. Like, I've got to take the word of God seriously. I've got to be obedient. I'm going to read one more passage. I'm going to close with this. This is Israel hypothetically asking God a question through the prophet Micah. So essentially they've been offering some some things to God and God's been saying, I do not want that. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. And so they're like, fine. This is what you asked for before. What do you want, God? What do you want? Starting in verse six, it says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They're like, what do you want, God? I'll give it to you. And, And God's turned down what they've offered up until this point. In verse eight, he says this, he has told you a man what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so when we look at that, suddenly we have to ask ourselves, do we actually do those things? Do I do do the full meaning of justice? Not just do I get mine in front of court, but do I actually act in a way that's fair and equitable for everybody, that that I give generously because I care about people? Do I react in kindness? Do I love people where they're at, regardless of of the way that they treat me? Is grace and love the driving factor in, in my interactions with people? And the issue that pops up over and over and over again is do you walk humbly with God? Because if I'm humbly walking with God, if I have have seen the grace that God has showered on me at the cross and the grace that he has showered on me over and over and over since then, then my response is not gonna be I gotta get mine because God's already blessed me. And maybe not financially, but he's given me so much that I'm not gonna be like, oh, I've gotta make sure that everything that I can scratch out of this life I'm gonna grab. You're gonna say, no, God's blessed me. He's given me all the riches of the world in Christ Jesus. I can just be a blessing. And if you recognize the grace that God has given you, then you're naturally gonna say, I need to be gracious and merciful to the people that are around me because that's how God has treated me. If I'm selfish and I'm clinging on to things, whether it's my time or my money or whatever it is, if I'm, if I'm clinging on to things, then I'm not demonstrating the grace that God has showed me. Doing justice and loving kindness are the natural byproducts of walking humbly with God. right? If I'm walking humbly with God, those are the things that I do because that's how I, I live my life because God has blessed me so much. So the questions we have to just always focus on is, Am I walking humbly with God? Let's close in prayer. Father, we recognize that we live in in a day and age when it's not just that the selfishness is in our own hearts, it's that it's all around us and that people around us encourage us to be selfish. And and we can act selfishly and and sort of grasp after things and everyone encourages, yeah, get yours. And and that's, that's applauded in our culture, but it's the opposite of the way that you've called us to act, Lord. You have been so generous to us with, with financial blessings, with spiritual blessings. You've you've given us a relationship with yourself, which is all that we could ever ask for. And so I pray that we would live out the natural results of that blessing and bless the people around us with whatever it is, whether it's, it's finance, whether it's the way that we treat them, whether it's how we vote at the polls, whatever it is, Lord, that we would be willing to be as generous with, with ourselves as we possibly can to the world around us. That that our overflow of, of, of mercy and grace would impact them and they would ask why we're different, why we love them so much in spite of the fact that, that we don't get anything out of it and that we could point them back to you, that we could demonstrate your love in this world. We pray this in your name, amen.